0: Honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way. Great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed, or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I wanna give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. in the upswing and popularity of the legalization of marijuana as the legalization of marijuana uh, becomes more popular in the States and in Canada and is just becoming the trend it's pretty obvious to me that the tides are turning that way when I talk about marijuana and I talk about the negative effects of marijuana I tend to get a lot of um, Aggressive male, and sometimes that's putting it lightly. I've actually received death threats at a time. And what's curious to me is that back in my day of marijuana, the whole thing about it was that it was supposed to be a peaceful, loving, it was a way to tune into the world and to turn on to, to other people and to drop out of the norm. And for all intent and purpose, the legalization of marijuana um, is supposed to help. And I think it is helping some things. I think that there are people who have been accused and punished um, for crimes of uh, directly related to marijuana um, that didn't require such harsh sentencing. I do believe a decriminalization of marijuana is in order. However, what I have seen, what I work with on a daily basis, and the families that I talk to are not experiencing, and my work is not a daily experience, of the benefits of marijuana, medical, um, casual use, or otherwise. Marijuana does not come without its shadow. And I talk to a lot of people who are either in the shadow or affected by the shadow that marijuana brings. And whether or not you're a big marijuana smoker and you're afraid that a podcast like this is going to make it so they come and take your drugs away and prohibition will start up again, um, I doubt you'll make it through the podcast. I I doubt you'll be able to handle this. And I say that with all the sincerity because uh, this mental ibuprofen that you are utilizing on a daily basis, if you're a daily marijuana smoker, um, is keeping you from having to deal with anything uncomfortable. And the mom uh, I'm going to talk to today, mom we're going to talk to, uh, is dealing with a lot of discomfort. And the reason why I brought her on is because of how she's dealing with discomfort. Marijuana is not without its shadow. The research is there. Is it as bad as heroin? Quit bringing up that stupid argument. I don't think marijuana is addictive. I don't care if it's addictive or not. I know... People, and I know people can get addicted to all kinds of things, gambling, shopping, pornography, food, and marijuana. So I'm not going to make this conversation about marijuana. But if you're one of those proponents of legalization, you're going to have a hard time listening to this because the truth of the matter is you know people like the people this mom is going to talk about. She's going to talk about her kid and it's uncomfortable because this is happening too and blame whatever you want, but these are the moms I work with. These are the dads I work with and these are the kids I work with and the research of marijuana's effect on the brain, on a developing brain is there. I have to take testosterone shots twice a week. Because marijuana destroyed my body's ability to produce testosterone. And the research is there. I work with kids who struggle with depression, extensive depression, and marijuana is making it worse. Anxiety, marijuana is making it worse. You don't have to like what I'm about to say. But damn it, if you're not going to listen, turn it off now. But if you're a parent who's concerned that your kids are smoking pot, if you're a teacher who's concerned that your students are smoking pot in school and their grades are dropping, if you're a clinician that's wondering if this stuff is really hurting or helping, listen to this mom from Canada. Listen to her story. It's uncomfortable, but it's going to help because what she's figured out, I want you to hear. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey mom from canada you told me to call you tina welcome to the show
1: thank you Erin, so much for having me it's an absolute privilege to have a conversation with you about this topic because i think it's affecting so so many parents right now and i i feel obligated to share my story because i know that so many other parents are suffering out there as a result of uh, their kids being addicted to pot
0: You and I connected yesterday on Facebook. I I received an invitation. How I received it, I don't know, doesn't really matter now. But I received an invitation to like your page. Uh, And uh, I went to your page. I, I saw what you had begun. It's a relatively new page on Facebook. I'll have you talk about that later as well. Followed up on your website and connected with you and just saying, would it help if you talked to my podcast? And you and I talked for a good hour and 15 minutes yesterday, just listening to the story and, and sharing some frustrations and understandings about how things are going on. So there, and I, without giving anything away, you really talked about a lot of important things that I really and truly want parents to understand. And I think you've really worked hard to create an environment for you that's sustainable, despite what's going on in your family. So let's, let's go back, tell the story so that moms and dads, teachers and clinicians who are listening to Beyond Risk and Back can really say, all right, I need to, I need to stick with this. So tell us your story.
1: Okay. Well, um, the, I guess my story culminates at a vortex where I have twins that are, uh, that were, you know, going into adolescence at the age of 15, 14, 15, they started, um, you know, to become, well, they were very mature and independent to begin with. Um, But I guess as the teens, you know, developed into the point where they wanted to explore the world in their own terms, um, how that manifested was try and pot. And the minute that my kids um, tried pot, their personalities changed. It wasn't like uh, it was a, a long lead time up to smoking pot it was it was like sticking a key in a lock and it just unlocked their brain in a completely different way um their personalities changed from loving kind connected to defiance rule adverse um, very like negative and angry, and just um I didn't know who they were because it was such a dramatic shift from my kids that I brought up. Um, my kids were, in grade seven, honor students as twins. People used to ask me all the time, how did you possi- How could you have possibly raised your kids so well? Because they were so well-mannered and so um, connected and friendly and smart. They were like actually like 30-year-olds because uh, I teach self-awareness programs and they've been in my program since they were four. So they were very, very, and plus we travel the world. So they were, they had a strong understanding of the world. They were very connected in terms of social media and they understood the world through the internet, through travel. Plus our, our family is, you know, where I'm in business and they went to a lot of my events. So they were, they were really, really well-rounded, smart kids, pot, um, pot, pot hijacked my kids' brains. That's what happened. And um, it wasn't, a lot of people spend a lot of time searching for what was the reason for that? It was an absent father, there was domestic violence, they have addiction in their genetics. And I can say yes to all of those things. Um, There are are things that happen to us by nature of being human that are not always positive experiences. And that that whole concept that, oh, the reason your kid is smoking pot is because they, they you know, had this trauma. Um, I'm going to say to that, that everybody has trauma at a different level and everybody makes it mean something different. You could, you know, as a kid, put up your hand in class and everybody laugh at you and you can make it mean something so traumatic that you use it as a catalyst uh, for addictive behavior, so on, on on the other spectrum of that, you could be you know a victim of or a child in the case of a domestic violence uh, situation and have extreme trauma repeated over and over, and then make that mean something as well and use that to to as the reason to be addicted. So the the spectrum of why people actually become addicted was something that I that I set out to try and understand. And what I realized is that it's not logical. It doesn't always add up and make sense. Uh, the more you try to pinpoint exactly and precisely what it is, the more confused you get. And um, I recognize the insanity, the real insanity of trying to figure it all out and, and pinpoint and figure, you know, that is the direct cause of why that, you know, my kids are, are uh, addicted and it was very it was a strong pursuit of mine because i have twins and i was like okay well this is kind of the perfect scientific experiment in that i have two children so therefore it must be genetics as an example but i still to this day can't conclude that you know maybe there's something neurologically going on that we don't know about in the brain and i think there's a lot we we still need to learn Um, But the reality is there are physical factors, spiritual factors, intellectual factors, environmental factors, and to try and say that we know the reason or the cause is uh, to me is inaccurate. There's so many variables that all we can do is work and try different things until we get, we can, we can find a way through.
0: What are what are some of the things that uh, you you tried with your kids? Not only in the earlier stages of their experimentation and use, but then in the later stages when the abuse and potential dependency um, starts to take over.
1: Right from the get go, from the moment they started smoking pot, and they had such dramatic shift in behavior. They they dropped all their friends immediately, and then it, because I'm a single mom, it was too. It was like the two of them smoking pot against me, the dynamics and the dominance of our household changed. They became the, the people in our home that wanted to say how it was going to go. And that therefore, you know, simple, basic rules, like being home at a certain time or uh, getting your homework done. That was just, that's what they were rebelling against. So, I I was I was living an hour out of town and it was the dynamic. I had no help or surra- or, or support around me, um, so I said, you know, I need resources. So I moved into the city to get right away get help. That was within you know two months of it starting. And I said, I can't I can't continue here because it's it's a dangerous dynamic. My kids are not getting any help. They're continuing to smoke pot. They're not listening to me. And I'm a single mom in a situation with no support. So the first thing I did was reach out for support. And I got involved with some of the local um, support systems. And I got my kids involved in them. And my son, uh, we brought him, uh, got him support with a three-month detox program. And he he went to that program and my, my, my daughter, she was continuing to use pot while he was in there and she continued to get worse and worse. Um, when he came out of three months of, uh, um, I guess an addiction facility, uh, he came out much, much worse than when he went
0: you and i talked a little bit about that yesterday you know that that he went in for three months came out worse um talk about what you what you mean by worse you know he he goes in with a problem big enough to necessitate three months of recovery how did he come out and and what do you think were the facility's failings well
1: again uh, like to me the biggest issue is people kind of pointing fingers on parents or facilities and I think in addiction you can't do that I think we have to refrain from doing that that's why there's a lot of stigma around it that's why a lot of people avoid it that's why we don't want to talk about it I think we got to stop blaming everyone and everything in the equation and just deal with what is but how the difference in in him when he came out of there was um, he went right off the rails he went straight to drugs uh and and like brought drugs into the house and was smoking them out the bathroom window and was stealing things from the house and walking out of the house with stuff in his hands that he didn't care if anybody caught him he started going through cars to steal money in order to uh get pot and it didn't matter what anybody thought or you know he he, he, he stole his grandmother's jewelry, her her wedding rings, stuff like that, things that, that he knew were personal and valuable, and he loves his grandmother more than anyone in the world. So it was, there was a level of defiance that, uh, I, I can't tell you what was going on in his mind, but to me, it was like someone who's was led out of a cage. It was like, I he was so, he was, What's, what's the word? I guess when you, when you abstain from something for so long or, and you're put in isolation and it was like breaking out is how I would describe it. And, you know, if if you go to an addictions therapy uh, session, they'll say, well, that, you know, when people aren't ready to change, that's exactly what you can expect. And then you can go to another group of thought and they'll give you another reason. Well, that's because you never had a dad uh, in the picture. And you can go to another group and you get, and that's what I did. I spent six months going to every single, to the hospitals, to counselors, to peer counseling, to social workers, and I tapped into every possible resource that was in our capital city. So um, that process itself um, was exhausting for me, because for example, I had both of my twins to the hospital here, the Janeway Hospital, and they they were, ne- were not admitted to the hospital, even though, um, for example, my daughter was in a complete uh, psychotic breakdown, where she lost touch with reality. She didn't know her boyfriend standing in front of her. She didn't know, you know, what day of the worry- week it was. She was in a complete state of acute psychosis, and they turned her away, saying, you know, well, unless she says she's going to commit suicide or she's aggressive, we're not going to admit her. And to me, that's not a criteria for someone with an illness um, that is uh, addiction or mental illness. The criteria should be that this person has lost touch with reality, and therefore she is a danger to herself and others. And she was because, I mean, she she ended up going back out on the streets looking for um, actually picking up garbage uh, at four and five o'clock in the morning in the center city. Nothing could in my world could have been more dangerous than that. At four or five o'clock in the morning by herself in a state of psychosis, picking up garbage because she thought that was a beautiful thing to do for the environment, which it is, but un- completely unaware of the fact that she may be in danger in that situation. No ability to self-reflect. So my definition of if someone is unwell is the fact that they're embarking on risky behavior and they don't have the ability to self-reflect to the point where it could cause them harm. That's my definition. But according to hospitals and other organizations, you know, it has to be different than that. And that's not my kids' personalities. They aren't aggressive. They don't threaten to commit suicide.
0: Mom, real quick, does it it help you to try to find something you know, you, you've talked a little bit about it. So I want to, I, I, and you've been, you've talked about a lot of different things, environmental, uh, neurological, uh, spiritual, emotional, physical, mental. There's all these uh, things that, that are lending to the potential for uh, uh, everything from the psychotic break to the, to the defiant behavior. Does it, and, and you talked about the, the frustration that you were, you know, hospitals, counselors, peer counselors, social workers in a six-month time period. How exhausted you were yeah. listening to everybody tell you what the, what the potential cause is. Are you still looking for the cause? Are you still looking for the magic bullet? And do you feel that if you found it, that it would help you at this point in your life?
1: No. I... I, I... I've come to a profound place of acceptance in that what is is and what's happening with my children, um, is exactly what's happening. And if I, as long as I try to, um, uh, stop it, fix it and make them better, all I'm really doing is make myself sick. And I did get sick as fa- In fact, I got as sick as my children in a different type of sickness, I I ended up with PTSD from struggling and working so hard trying to fix it for them. And that's not an effective solution. Um, I quickly realized as I, you know, my, my one strength is that I will siphon through information and learn quickly instead of making the same mistakes. So I had one great counselor for myself that's the first thing I put in place was a consistent counselor who had a lifetime experience with addictions and she was my foundation and I would see her no matter what every week and or every two weeks, depending on how things were. And that as a foundation and my own extreme, what I call extreme self-care became my, my own mandate for my life. And extreme self-care to the point where uh, like, I've never known this level of self-care for myself or anybody else. But I, I knew that if I didn't do that, I, I would be dead this time next year. And that this, this didn't take the life of my two children. Um, it would have taken three lives. So. Talk,
0: talk about the extreme self-care now, because that's the piece, as I listen to your story, and... You and I talked a little bit about that concept, terminally unique. No parent realizes that they share this story. Every parent comes, I talked to thousands of parents over the years, and everybody thinks that their story is so unique that no one's going to understand, and they're surprised that not only do other people understand, but there's other people in the room who've experienced their story. Now is where I believe you have discovered something that is unique, but instead of terminally unique, this is life-giving you're using the words extreme self-care. I know from working with moms for so many years that the idea of putting yourself first, and every person who's stuck through this show this far knows that at the end of the show, I'm going to say, take care of yourself first, take care of your adult relationship second, and take care of your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our kids. And the moms hear it, They understand it. They can comprehend it. And then it's like a chemical in the mom brain turns on and says, but if I don't sacrifice myself, if I don't put myself last, if I don't put the suffering first, their suffering first, all hope is lost. You've embraced extreme self-care. So let's talk about this now. Yeah.
1: And I can understand that with moms because we are – we're made up that way and we're made to care. Um, And also I ran a business and I put myself last in that equation as well. And I can tell you with 100% certainty, it did not serve me. Uh, It didn't serve me in the parenting role and it didn't serve me in my business. Um, For me, there's a beautiful silver lining and a lesson in all of this. And I first of all had to consider my children the teachers. And at the minute that I realized that they were my teachers um, and I applied that to my life, my lesson was to love myself enough to go into a place of extreme self-care. So I was anchored to the fact that my children were my teachers, that I was not their mother. And from that perspective, I gained the ability to do something different, which was to say, okay, I have to let go in order to actually get this situation to work for me and not work for the kids or not work for, you know, people's ideas or thoughts about addiction, but work for me personally. And that was a moment by moment experience, meaning I had to break down my day by the hour and say, okay, this first part of my day, for example, my day so far has been. My first hour, I get very in tune with, I do, I have a lot of different uh, Facebook correspondences, initiatives, but I put positive information out there. I get connected with positive information, with positive people, with positive affirmations, with positive information, and I elevate my energy first thing in the morning by being connected, you know, which I think is the gift of Facebook, is that we can actually share that level of positivity with so many people. Um, and I just kind of swim around in that for the first hour. Then I get out of bed and I've become a vegan since then. I, I feel that if I hadn't become a vegan, I, I would actually not survive this. Um, and that's because my body, through the first six months of the, this experience, it was like someone being on the front lines at war. And I, it, hit, it hit my body at such an extreme level that the I actually thought I was going to die many times in the process, and I I realized that the impact that it's had on my organs and my skin and my body. I was starting to age rapidly, and I said, "No more! This is not going to happen." So I everything from my my the way I brush my teeth, which is you know I use baking soda, and then um, I polish my teeth with sesame oil from. That then I move into my breakfast, which is made with you know, veg, hot leafy green smoothies and all kinds of seeds and nuts and hemp and stuff like that. And then um, then I, I go on about my, my work or I don't think about my kids, okay, which is, it may, seems contradictory or terrible, but I will focus on the tasks that I have to do in order to keep my business successful so that I'm financially successful because I have to be financially okay in this equation as well. Nobody is responsible for my success other than me. And I'm not willing to let a 27 year old business, which I built go down the drain because of an experience I'm having with my kids. So like, it is a matter of saying, okay, that's a priority. Now, does that mean that I don't stop and say, okay, well I have to make one call today to the hospital to make sure that I, you know, that that the people know that it's not okay for my kids not to be admitted. I might sit and make that call or make or send that letter, or I might take a certain time I take a small amount of time each day to do something positive towards Um, what I feel is necessary, like this call, for example. This is my hour to share right now about my kids. But after this call, no, I'm going back to what I'm committed to in this day, whether it's going to yoga or whether it's going to continue with my business. And even tonight, um, like it's Friday night. So what do I do? Well, I have a couple coming over and he's he's himself went through uh, 13 years of addiction and uh, he came out the other end he was clinically uh, confirmed clinically dead seven different times wow. and him and his girlfriend are coming over and we're going to share experiences about you know he's come out the other end of it and now is a coach for people who are dealing with addiction and mental illness and which is such a beautiful thing him and his girlfriend and they're now pregnant which is even more beautiful um mm. so we're all going to sit together and share and they're vegan as well um he that's how he actually got well was becoming vegan
0: um you told me yesterday you told me yesterday that you you cry on a daily basis and you know about your kids and i I'm listening to you. And again, with, with the, with the moms that I've worked with, um, this, this concept that you're talking about, they want it, they know it's a good idea. And then they come back and say, this is selfish. Do you feel like a selfish mother?
1: No, no, definitely not. I think that I'm in a very, very good example of, what my kids, how my kids are going to need to get over their own addiction issues. Right there, I'm grounded in that. And I'm also grounded in the fact that um, I have an older daughter as well, she's 31. And, you know, I she would be extremely sad if something happened to me. And yesterday, her and I were in yoga together and I had this most profound moment of bliss when I looked over at her sitting there meditating at 31 completely healthy, fit, vibrant, beautiful. And I said, you know, I just patted myself on the back for a moment, said, you know what? I've done such a great job and as a mom. And to, to have such a beautiful, profound relationship with my daughter, um, she's 31 now, that's the vision I'm holding in place for my twins. So I just, in moments in t- of time, I have sadness and I don't want to push that down and not feel it when it comes up, I want to acknowledge it and express it. But at the same time, I don't want to become a victim to it because I think the victim position, it doesn't matter what you're dealing with in life, the victim position um, can be all consuming. And it would be very, very easy for people to look at me and say, oh my God, you know, considering what you're going through, of course you have a right not to get on with life. And it would be totally justifiable. but at the end of the day, it doesn't do anybody any good to be that victim.
0: How are your teens doing now? How are they doing?
1: Um, well, my my son, he's he was actually just, we are relieved um, because he was cycling through the course and had, you know, over 50 to 60 charges um, for like not, we have a system here where the kids who are charged the first time have a curfew and that kind of thing. And, and I can tell you that the first time I ever went to court and had to charge my son for a crime, it was huge. And to see him there uh, with chains on his, his feet and stuff, that's, it was so hard just to, to watch him, you know, but I just kind of, I I kept going through those moments instead of pushing them away. And they still trigger me at moments, but I believe that they are at some point the foundation to his future. And as hard as it was, you know, I think the sense of loss is also, um, can become all encompassing and not healthy and, I just give myself like three seconds of sorrow and then I click right off it and say, okay, that's enough of that. And then move on. And I kind of give myself timeframes, like through all of this, I might've said, okay, you take one whole day and stay in bed, or, you know, give yourself three minutes to deal with this sad thought, the thought and then carry on. But I don't want to wallow and linger in it and become the victim because um, it's not helping. And the kids, my son is right now actually in in a place um, a facility for young boys, and he was just taken in and he 's' I feel very good about that because for the first time, um, I know that he 's safe I mean I spent last summer driving through the streets looking for him to, to see if he was outdoors at nights in the middle of the night, with no coat on, no sense of whether he's cold or not. Um, all kinds of, you know, risky behavior that he didn't even realize he was going through. So um, for me to know that right now he is He's, you know, in a a detention center for boys where he's being cared for. This may be the actual first time that he's going to get some medical attention and help. And that he, I don't like the fact that he's isolated because I don't believe incarceration is a solution really for addiction and mental illness. But I do think that the facility is such that um, he's actually going to not be on drugs for a little while and may have a chance to self-assess and that he actually will get some medical attention and help and support because I believe that every time that he cycled through the courts which was as far as I know like 15 16 times in the last four or five months uh that doesn't that wasn't helping in any way shape or form and my daughter she's doing okay but I don't know like she's she got to a place where she said she, they both left school by the way um they couldn't they couldn't uh, get through school at, at, at being as stoned as they were because they were using pot every day and that's they had one focus: get stoned and find people to get stoned with and find means and methods to get stoned and Our government here in Canada is actually you know paying for my son to to live outside the home when it when they both my kids have a healthy home to be in um, and are supporting them with that habit through paying for you know their their house their electricity and their their daily expenses and it's become a thing around here uh, where all the kids realize well i don't have to do what i'm told at 16 and i can get government funding so they spend a lot of time and energy focusing on making that happen and it's wrong. It should not happen. 16-year-olds shouldn't, you know, that age is way too young because obviously my kids are in a risky situation. They don't know what they're up up, up against. They're in the fight of their lives, and they have absolutely no idea. So um, they're nowhere, uh, not out of the woods by any means at this stage. They're, they're at the beginning stages of, of addiction where they haven't even admitted that they have an issue yet. So it's going to be a long road and people go through a process when someone comes out of it. uh, it, You know, that's, nobody ever knows the answer to that question. So I can't control those variables. All I can do is take care of myself and live the way that I give them the avenue, live the way that I feel that if, if they wanted to come home, come back home, because my door is always open. I never kicked my kids out. My kids were fiercely independent and they sought after pot. And I said to them, you know, if you ever take that level of uh, you know, determination and that level of uh, independence and you put it towards a business model, you're going to make a fortune because that, those attributes are massive and you have such strength, but do it in a way that doesn't hurt you. And right now, I mean, I understand it. They're they're smoking pot because, like, there's a lot of benefits in their world that makes them more creative. They can tune into other people. Um, They can drop out of the normal depression and anger of the world and the social media bullying and all that stuff. They have new perspectives. They're seeking independence. They're seeking freedom and fun and connection. And all of that comes with pot. I understand the intrigue. I, I get the, the the reason why they want to do it. A uh, lot, lot of my friends smoke pot. I've smoked pot before too. It's not it's not that I'm anti pot. Uh, what I'm uh, what I'm uh, against is the fact that these developing brains are smoking pot that is way stronger than it ever was, uh, putting kids into psychosis, as my kids have experienced. Brains that are hijacked from pot, and it's doing so so much damage because when they come out of this if they come out of it which we don't know if that's going to happen my life my kids are, lives are at stake every day and there's nothing worse the only thing worse than losing a child is living a life where you don't know if two of your children are going to be alive today on a daily basis
0: so let me let me ask this as we as we come around to the end because i want to make sure Uh, parents listening have an opportunity to to find you and connect in the community you've created on Facebook. Do you still have hope and how do you hold on to it?
1: I do. I have profound hope because I invested 16 years of everything that I am and everything positive into my kids and also a lot of uh, self awareness pro you know training that they they received and just the way that we live life so i hold on to again facebook is a, has been a gift for me because all our memories come up and i look at the pictures of the kids and i share them all the time and i put them out there to the world and i re- remember who they were before POT. and i also think in, and spend my time envisioning who they're going to be and if it works out Great. I mean, all my vision and my intention is there. And if it doesn't, if something does happen to them, you know, that is beyond my control. It is beyond my control, as sad as that is.
0: All right, so let's talk about now how a parent, a mom, a dad, a teacher, clinician is gonna get involved in your community. Talk about your Facebook page. How would you like people to connect with you?
1: Okay. So. I didn't, uh, I really didn't know what to do with this experience, but I do believe that the pains of the past create purpose for the future, and I've always been committed to helping people wherever possible. So I created a a Facebook page called um, Families with Loved Ones of Mental Health and Addiction Illness, and it's a brand new page. I'm just getting started. It's only got a couple hundred people on it so far, but I live in Newfoundland, And so there's a lot of things about the Canadian system that are not working. We have in Newfoundland, the highest level of addiction in the country and, um, pot addiction is going to be even more huge because like, all you have to do is go to the high schools and junior high schools to realize that it's not cool or okay to be drunk in school, but it's cool and okay to be stoned. And all the kids are out in the smoking area smoking pot. And so the social acceptance of it now that it's been legalized, especially um, it's just like a uh, green light here guys, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be right, vaping and being stoned in order to fit in and uh, things need to change. Things need to change at the Janeway hospital. Things need to change uh, at, in terms of the culture within our schools so that it, it isn't cool to, to watch people's brains being fried pod and to watch people's lives uh, being lost like we need to get acutely in tune with those conversations and be open and willing enough to speak up like i am today and not to be uh, shunning a conversation that has to be had when you're dealing with a one in four dynamic in our population because every single person every family is affected somehow They either have someone directly in their family or they know someone directly who has an addiction or mental health issue. So we can't afford to look the other way as a society. And it's gonna take conversations because the the community of health is nothing more than a network of conversations. So every conversation we have is gonna bring us to a higher place. And with everything, like nature only, nature works to balance and what we have right now is an enormous you know influx of, of of pot and all of those positive experiences for some people but there's also a lot of negative and we are not equipped to deal with the the, the negative impact we don't have the structures in place we don't have the support and you know my message to uh, prime minister trudeau is uh Basically, you better take those taxes that you're getting from from pot and start putting them into recovery systems because we need help.
0: Well, I can tell you from living in Colorado, um, that was a very noble idea that so far hasn't panned out. And and, um, on other podcasts, I've talked about what's happened, the illegal grow ops and the human trafficking that's taking place here in Colorado. It's keeping us number two in the United States for human slavery. Um, there are other problems connected to this. It was not well thought out. Um, there were dollar signs flashed in everybody's eyes and rich white men are getting richer for uh, owning and um, consolidating uh, this industry. And it is, it's the same game. It's just painted green and, and, everybody's being told it's a lot better. You know, the sports stadium's a Coors stadium and this is pot. So it's okay. But people aren't looking at what's really happening. I'm sorry you're going through this. And um, the the message that I take from you is the message that I have been communicating. It's, it's 10 o'clock here. I've already been to the gym. I've already completed my day timer for the day. I've begun work Uh, early this morning because I get up early and I take care of my body because the work I have to do every day with these kids, with my podcast, with talking to parents like you, with talking to experts who've been doing the research about all kinds of mental health. If you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to make it. It's not sustainable to go through this and not take care of yourself. So that's that's how we get through is through self-care. Say your Facebook page once again, and then I'm going to sign us off.
1: It's uh, families with uh, met- families with loved ones with mental health and addiction illness. So, yeah.
0: All right, folks, find that on Facebook.
1: Thank you, Aaron, so much for the work uh, that you do and for supporting uh, the parents and the kids. Like it means so much from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you. Stay on the line with me for a second, Mom. Um, parents, I'm gonna say it. Been talking about it. I'm gonna say it. You take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second. And you take care of your children third. Because in that way, we do our best work with our kids. It's it's the truth of that we all know. And then we have to get past everything that goes on underneath that, maybe not being cared for properly when we were children and feeling like we're over, uh, have to overcompensate to make up for what we didn't get reconciling our past relationships through our relationships with our kids who are quite frankly, doing everything in their power to, uh, um, not be in relationship with us, or they're just not capable of doing it because there's a neurological dysfunction taking place doing the level of, of, a uh, uh, homework and reaching out and support and connecting and being in the center of your own personal spider web of support so that you're connected to as many different things as possible. Heard the mom from Canada talking about yoga class and reaching out to counselors and peer counselors and social workers and, and you've, you've got to get out there and nurture those adult relationships so that you have a place to fall against fall back onto someone who's going to catch you when you, when you do, you're going to trip and fall. This hurts going through this with your kids hurts. So find your support systems, whether it's us, whether it's this podcast, whether it's look, and if you think that your children might need a residential program, contact our admissions department. It's fire mountain residential treatment center. Our website is firemountainprograms.com. The phone number is 303-443-3343, extension 204. The call is free. And if your child does not need treatment or would get better treatment somewhere else, we're going to tell you. We're going to tell you, we're going to be honest and open with you about what's going to help your family next. It's why we do the podcast. It's why I do all those videos. Go to Fire Mountain RTC on YouTube, Fire Mountain RTC. I have tons of videos out there trying to support parents. I want this information in people's hands. Beyond Risk and Back is now the number one parenting podcast in Colorado and the number one parenting podcast on Mental Health News Radio. I wanna thank you listeners for listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. As always, thanks to the boss goddess at Mental Health News Radio Network, Kristen Walker, for all of her love and support, and my editor, Daniel Cropper. I want to thank my guest, the mom from Canada. Tina, thank you so much for, uh, for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your brutal honesty. All right, folks. We will see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens, or me, please go to FireMountainPrograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at aaron at Programs.com.